Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett, and today my very special guest on this week's episode is the legendary Dennis Tech. You'd know Dennis from his solo albums and, of course, his work as lead guitarist and songwriter with Radio Birdman. Birdman are about to celebrate their 50th anniversary with a small run of shows through Australia in June. You can check their website for further details. And today I get to talk to Dennis about everything from Radio Birdman to his early love his early life, sorry, and his loves, before he moved to Australia to study medicine, his love of the Stones, the Rolling Stones, so much more. And I've got to say, you know, as as a Swifty dad, I've been listening to a lot of pop music these last couple of weeks, so to get downstairs in my bunker and crank up the first Radio Birdman record, among other things, was just an unparalleled joy for me this week. And to talk to Dennis was just the icing on the cake. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here he is, the brilliant Dennis Tech. Dennis, I'm so glad you could join me on Time to Talk today. Nice to see you, you over there in Hawaii. Yeah, really good to see you too. It's been a while. I know it has been a long time, but I'm, I'm so excited you're coming down to play with Radio Birdman to Australia. You know, last night I was going through an old box and I found a cassette and I, I bought myself a cheap boom box recently and I put it on and there was a whole bunch of garage rock things and it got to Rocky Erickson doing You're Gonna Miss Me. And then I had your version on there. I'd made this cassette as like a teenager. Yeah, and yeah. It blew my mind just the energy coming out of that little boombox of um what a great band you have. Um thank you. Thank you. It's it's really cool that you have a cassette player. Yeah, and I gotta say, I don't know what it is, Dennis, but they just sound different. They sound great. <laughs> it takes me way back. Um and I've been listening to a lot of Taylor Swift lately because my kids are obsessed and um, yeah. nothing wrong with that. But hearing four or five or six guys in a room making a noise together, it's a pretty special sound, isn't it? Yeah, it's very different than Taylor Swift. So the thing that disturbed me, I looked at the press release before we started chatting and it said uh, final tour. It's like I, I felt a pang of uh, sadness when I saw that but why is it the final time? Uh, I don't know that it necessarily is the final time. Um, it's uh, it could be, and it probably it probably is. Yeah. Um, and uh, and there are there are various uh, uh, health reasons that might be driving that mm-hmm. that 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 I can't really go into. But um, we're just going to hope to make it through this one and then see how it goes. Um, but uh, but no plans beyond beyond this tour. You know, that, that's the great thing about uh, bands of your vintage. I, I've seen a few guys over the years that have gone, this is probably going to be it. Then suddenly some kind of miracle of good health happens and the band do it again. Yeah, that's, that's possible, you know. It's certainly possible. But... Um, you know, I'm 71. Rob is what is going to be 74 this year, I think. And uh, you know, that's different than 21. Yeah. And the thing about this band, Sean, is that if we can't go out there and uh, present the material and present our band with full power, and you know, consistent with the original vision and intent of the band, then we're not going to do it. Mm. 
you know, we're not going to, we're not going to go out there and, and, and be at half power. It's uh it's just not what we do. And, and so it really, you really come up against uh, some physical constraints about that. I mean, getting ready for this tour, I'm going to, you know, not only have to learn the back catalog again, which we haven't, we haven't toured since 19, just before the pandemic was the yeah. last tour. Um, so I'm gonna have to, you know, learn those songs again, but also I've got to work on my endurance and my speed and mm. my general fitness level. You know, I'm starting to train for it now. Yeah. It's well, like an well, athletic event. And what is training, Dennis? Is it, uh, getting the guitar out? Is it running? What is it? What are you doing to sort of get mentally and physically prepared? Well, for, for general fitness, I am, yes, I'm running, you know, and working out mm. and, uh, I'm doing, I'm going through a course of physical therapy now to sort help sort out some spine problems I've got Yeah, and try to get that under control before the tour. And, and then, uh, and then get the guitar out every day and just, um, uh, you know, some days focus on speed, some days focus on, you know, endurance and, um, you know, it's, it's a, uh, you don't want to train too hard too soon because you could get tendonitis or things like that. So it's, it's a balance and, um, I think work up to it got to work up to it gradually. Like you're, if you were training for a marathon, you would, and, um, uh, you know, stay within safety parameters, but increase the, uh, you know, the fitness to do the job to where we can play at full power and we're not going to do anything less. When I saw you guys in, uh, 2019, it was like you literally metaphorically, I should say, burned the place to the ground. Uh, talk about take no prisoners. It was just, it was intense. It was amazing to see that kind of energy coming out of the stage. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of, you know, we're, that's kind of become our, 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 one of our trademarks is to, is to play at that, at that energy level. And, you know, in a way it's, it's like, yeah, we started it. Now we're stuck with it. <laughs> that's why it can't go on forever. Yeah. It's, it's funny, you know, uh, Rob Hurst, who, who, you know, and, uh, I said yeah. to him years ago, I said, you know, Rob, you should have chosen Charlie Watts as the guy you wanted to emulate, not Keith Moon. Because right. when you play like that, it's it's hard to maintain. Um yeah, yeah. Dennis, right. what was the big uh what was the big yeah, we could always re we could always re reinvent ourselves as something else, but people wouldn't like it. No, no, we wouldn't like it, Dennis. You're right. What was the big bang for you when you were a kid? Who did you go and see live and you thought, yeah, that's the kind of thing I want to do? The Stones. Right. And, and was that, um, what year was that? 69. And, and where was the venue? Do you remember? Yeah, it was in Detroit. It was the, um, it was Olympia, which which was an ice hockey stadium. Small one, you know, about a 8,000 seater. Mm -hmm. And, um, and they were playing there on that 1969 tour, the, the the first tour after Brian Jones died. And I had seen other bands that I wanted to emulate before that. Mm. And, uh, you know, local bands, mm. you know, we were seeing, I was, I grew up in, I was a teenager in Ann Arbor 
and we had the MC5 as a local band and 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 the Stooges and the Rationals and SRC and the Amboy Dukes and bands like that. I was going to see those bands all the time. And and from them, I learned something from every one of them. And um, but but the one that was really to me like almost a religious experience that was the uh, that Stones concert. What was it about that concert? Was it the set list or was it the weaving guitars or what was it? It was everything. You know, yeah. you couldn't pin it on any one thing, but the, uh, but the, yeah, they did weave guitars and they, and they, and the, the, the song list was amazing. Uh, the sound was fantastic. And, uh, and you could get right down to the front. I mean, you could mm. just about put your elbows on the, <laughs> on the front of the stage and um see what was going on and and the overall impact was huge yeah i can imagine in fact it's coming back to me i think a few years ago i might have found that desk tape on youtube or something i think i sent you a link so yeah. if anybody's listening that wants to check out that gig you can actually uh find it online yeah and in fact there is a there's a guy in his name is Ben Diamond, D-Y-M-E-N-T, Diamond. If you look at his YouTube channel, he's got uh, television footage of that concert that was filmed by Detroit Tube Works at the time. It was a small local underground TV station that used to film bands. They 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 like they had a, a Beefheart concert and they'd film local bands and and there's there is footage of that concert and on Ben Diamond's uh uh YouTube of it, you can see me on there. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. I've got about eight seconds where I'm standing on on a on you know on a you know, I'm jumping up and down going crazy in the front. And uh that blew me away when I saw that. That is that is mind blowing. That really is, but but you know I I saw the Stones again in '73 in in Australia, and I went to several shows. In fact, I hitchhiked up to Brisbane to to see them up there, and and uh, and I had a a Super 8 movie camera that I rented from a, a camera store mm -hmm. that I filmed part of the one of the Sydney shows. Wow, and and. Um, that guy, same guy, Ben, helped me sync that to to uh, a live recording from that same show and and do the editing for me and, and digitize it. Oh, so for for all these years, you know, for fifty years, it's been sitting in in a closet. You know, just this this reel of uh, eight millimeter film, and now it's now it's out there available. Amazing, amazing. I think when they played Brisbane, it was before my time, but uh, did they play the tennis centre there? It's quite a legendary yeah. game. Yeah, they did. Yeah, the tennis centre. It was, And it was a mid-afternoon show. It wasn't at night. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah Broad people, daylight. People told me the stands were moving, apparently. Yeah, that was incredible. <laughs> when was the last time you saw them? Uh, about two years ago. Oh, right. I went back, back and saw him in Detroit again. Yeah. 
Amazing. And uh, I, I guess poor Charlie probably wasn't with us two years ago, was he? It was he would have been uh, no it was the it was the first tour without charlie yeah 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 right right so dennis you obviously caught that rock and roll bug early and then you came to australia in uh, 71 to study medicine why did you it sort of seems like america is the place people wanted to go but you came here when you grow up in a place and you don't know anything else you think you don't think it's all necessarily all that special. Yeah. You know, now looking back on it, I, of course, I know that was a very special time and, and place for music. Yeah. And I was just so lucky to have been there. But at the time, being in it, you well, almost, you know, you think, oh, it's probably like this everywhere. Mm. And I, I had been in Australia for a year in 67 with my parents already and and the music scene then was really good in australia they you know there were a lot of cool bands um most of it was hearing them on the radio because i wasn't really old enough to go to a lot of mm -hmm. shows but um but yeah you know the loved ones masters apprentices purple hearts the of course the easy beats and um Zoot and bands like that were all got my attention in 1967. And so I, I just knew that Australia had a vibrant music scene going on and it was by an ocean. Mm. If you come from Michigan, you, you know, the, the most exotic thing in the world is to live next to an ocean and learn how to surf. Yeah. And, and then the, the, the other thing was it got me as far away from my parents as possible. Yeah. Okay, that's a very rock and roll thing to do. Yeah, so I, I just got a backpack and I, and took my guitar and went there. I went the long way through Europe and down through Africa and Asia, but um, but when I got there, it was different. The the music scene had sort of gone stale by right. nineteen seven by nineteen seventy two. Uh, it was kind of more into slowed down stoned music like boogie blues kind of electric blues kind of stuff and and um kind of stonehenge kind of stuff and um so like you had the hippies and then and then you had the sort of like the the mullet stoners yeah and and there wasn't that much interesting going on in music when i came back and it's not that I saw it as a blank page to write on, but that's kind of kind of how how it went. When you were putting uh, Birdman together, was it easy to find like-minded people? Yeah, it was. It was because I think there there's a magnetism that attracts them together. Mm -hmm. It's uh, something that you know. There's some sort of supernatural um, mechanism that brings like-minded people together and 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 that that's how it worked yeah yeah i was flicking through your records again uh this morning and radios appear is one of the greatest debut albums by anybody I and mean, i think it's kind of weird how a lot of my favorite records are debuts from artists there's two versions out there which is the one that you if push comes to shove would you say is can you say one's better than the other 
Would you have a preference for them? Uh, you know, the first one was done over a long period of time. Several took several months to record it because we were only allowed to go in the studio when the studio didn't have any paying customers. This was Charles we, Fisher. Yeah. Yeah. We were just sort of kids off the street and, and, you know, we were by that time, like mid 76, we were, we were playing at the, um, every Friday and Saturday night at the Oxford mm -hmm. in Sydney. And so our chops were pretty good. You know, we were playing all the time and, and we were experimenting all the time. If we wrote a new song, we did it live for months before it ever hit tape. So it had time. Those songs had time to evolve uh, in, in at gigs. And then when we were lucky enough to get into the studio and roll tape, we'd put a couple of them down. Mm -hmm. And finally that, you know, by the end of 1976, there was enough material to put an album out. Yeah. And uh, so that was that first album and there's nothing wrong with it. I think, I think it's fine, but um, then when Sire came along, we never expected that album, that first album to, to be ever heard outside of Australia. Or even outside Sydney, for that matter. Yeah, maybe maybe Sydney and Melbourne. Um, but then Seymour Stein came and opened up this huge horizon for us and said, "Well, I want to bring this music to the whole world." Mm. And by the, by that time, the album had been out for a while, and we had written some new songs that we'd been doing live, and we thought, "Wow, you know, we we have a." there's no reason we can't put out a different version of this album, including some of the new material mm -hmm. and then redo some of the ones that were on the original album, redo them the way we're playing now, which was even hotter than, than we were then. So we said, Oh, let's just do that because you know nobody's ever going to hear the Australian one anyway. Yeah. Of course, as it turns out, that's the classic one that everybody wants. And we'll, <laughs> worldwide that's the one that people really relate to the sire one did did come out and and it kind of got buried you know the only most people that have a copy have a cutout and uh, of the original pressing because yeah. it just got it got sent to warehouses and then just sat there because we got dropped from the label in the middle of all that and sire got dropped by their distribution so the album that album never never really got out and um although i like it i mean that they're they're both good they're oh, just yeah. sort of two sides of the same coin really it's a pretty cool thing isn't it with that much um hindsight to sort of go through parallel doors with the same album and yeah. have two alternate views of it and you, you're right they're both both great um you've been very prolific as an artist all the way through your career i'm wondering when you make an album these days, do you have an arbitrary date in the future that you work towards and think I have to make it by this time? Or do you wait till you've gathered 10, 12, 14 songs together? Um, how does that work for you, Dennis? It varies album to album. Sometimes I write to a schedule. If I know I want to tour mm. at a certain point in time in the future and I want to have, you know, and I count back, when do I have to have this album finished by? 
and mixed and mastered by to get it to where it's out when we tour. So there is that. But if there's no tour to to promote, then then it really doesn't matter and I can take all the time I want. It's interesting in terms of your writing process, because you're a live performer, you, you do a lot of gigs. Um, are you always thinking this is a piece of work I'll be playing for an audience? Do you ever sort of sit there and think this is one that people might listen to on their own in their bedroom? I, when I do album, when I, when I write an al a new album, I don't really think about how it's going to go live. Right. Uh, at all. I, I don't consider it. I, I just write what I think is the, the best rendition of that song that I can, where they come. I don't know where these songs come from, you just sort of pick them out of the air and then you re work on them. And as you know, you refine them and, and beat them into, into something that's recognizable as a song uh, from the original idea. And for me, it's, I'll worry about how I'm going to do them live later. Mm. It's all about the, how they're going to come across on an album in someone's speakers in their house. That's, that's what I care about when I write. And wearing two hats, I mean, for Radio Birdman, uh, do you think at some point in the future you'd like to cut it? Because, I mean, the difference is these days in 2024, a lot of bands just put out a single or an EP. They don't have to make an album anymore. Uh, does that appeal to you, that idea of recording with Birdman again? It appeals to me, but it doesn't necessarily appeal to all the other guys. Ah. So that, that's when democracy is a drag. <laughs> yeah, you know, we've... It's, it's uh yeah it's it's been difficult to get our heads together on that one i i personally though yeah i'd be very happy to do that but i i gotta to do that i you know mostly i have to get buy-in from from rob yeah and and um i don't think he's particularly keen on on recording with birdman right, this point, right? yeah yeah it's interesting with artists that have got careers as long as yours. Um, I always see everything these days as like a bonus. Everything's a bonus. It's like another chapter in an ever-evolving book. Yeah. So uh, I love it when people just keep going back to that well and putting new records out, which brings me to your career, your solo career. Are you thinking of uh, cutting something new again soon? Yeah, I'm mean, right in the middle of it right now. I'm, oh. uh, in fact, I'd, I had already started working on a new album when the idea of this 50th anniversary tour came up, we didn't actually know this tour was going to happen until fairly recently. Um, I was in Australia for my daughter's wedding and we got the band together for a barbecue at Dave Catley's place in Wollongong. And, um, and, and that's where we decided to do, to do this. And um, it seemed like time had, there had been enough time since the pandemic to that those of us that were very concerned about that would feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And we hadn't been out for about you know, four years and uh, it just seemed like the right time. And, and those of us who had not 
you know, uh, been in favor of the idea of touring before we're, we're open to it now for some reason. Mm. And it was just the right time to bring, to bring the topic up. And so we all agreed to do it. And, and, uh, that, um, you know, I can't remember why we started talking about that, but, um, but yeah, so getting everybody together on the same page at this point in time where we, you know, we've all had solo careers, we all do our own thing. When you, when you go to, uh, when you sign on to do a Birdman project, whether it's a tour or, or recording or anything else, all that other stuff has to, has to uh, take back seat. So I had started working on this new solo album. This came up. Now I've got to split my time between getting ready for, for this tour and getting that album finished. And I don't know if I can get it finished before the tour or not. It's just if it, if it doesn't, it doesn't. Just see how it goes. Is this I'm, Bird, I'm working. On it. Is this Bird, I'm glad. Is this Birdman tour an Australia only thing, or are you doing Europe as well? Yeah, Australia only, eight shows. Yeah, right. Wow. And I know you're doing some back to back, so it, it will be intense. Yeah, I was curious, Dennis. Obviously, you have been an ER doctor for a long time, and you've had that double balance of your art and your science does medicine has it always been the same passion as music for you or is it a different thing completely different mm. it's like two two different people living in the same body like dr jekyll and mr hyde you <laughs> you know i i keep those two things very separate yeah compartmentalized yeah. What attracted you to medicine in the first? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not working in medicine anymore. I. I. I, I stopped doing that a while right. back. Uh -huh. You know, I did my last ER shift in 2017. Oh, it's a while then. Yeah. Okay. So I, I know you're you're a big reader. What are you reading at the moment? Anything interesting? Oh yeah. Um, I am just finishing uh, a book called the spy and the traitor which is uh non-fiction it's a it's the story of um of a soviet uh kgb colonel who defected to to the uk actually he didn't defect to the uk he he had been assigned to uh uh london station at the soviet embassy and and then he became a double agent working for MI6. So I was reading that. Just interesting. I, I love Cold War history and uh, history of, you know, post-Second World War. You know, anything about G JFK, um, you know, the Khrushchev times, Cold War. I, I read that stuff avidly. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating time, isn't it? Um, do you think they'll ever solve what happened in Dallas? In 1963, I think it's been solved. It's just they won't tell us. Okay, right, right. What it is? It's, it's yeah, and and I, you know, I've I've done a lot of reading around that, and every time we get a new president, they always say we're going to open up all the files and release the information, and then of course they never do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They obviously read the folder, then close it again. Yeah, I think it's pretty. It, my from my own reading, I. I and and study about that. I think it's 
it's uh, highly probable that the CIA had him knocked off. Right. Okay. So you, do you go with the lone gunman theory? No. Okay. Right. I think I think there is at least three shooters. Yeah, well, I'm trying to think of that book. The, the guy that wrote the famous book about the Manson family, I've got it somewhere here. Um, oh, Bugliosi? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, that, that book's pretty fascinating. It's a brick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what about what about uh, films and things? Uh, do, do you uh, watch many movies and whatnot? Do you like to sort of keep all aspects of your creative life fired up? Oh yeah, I love I love movies. I love movies. Um, haven't been to any new releases recently, but um, you know I'll I'll probably go see Oppenheimer um, at some point. Um. Yeah, I, I, I do. I, I mean, there's so many great movies in the, from the past. It's like music, you know. Mm -hmm. the, the The back catalog of of movie history is like the back catalog of music history. There's so much great stuff back there that we haven't even heard yet, or seen yet, if it's films. And, and what's kind of bugging me a little bit with the whole streaming thing is we all buy into the streaming services. Then I go, hey, where's that film, that Robert Redford film from 1975? And it's not on there. And uh, yeah. all films are bought by, you know, a sewing machine company in 1972. They get archived. Right. They should all be out there, particularly those uh, things from the golden age of Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's getting difficult. And uh, and now that D, you, I mean – who's got a dvd player anymore you and just... uh <laughs> what about your your music uh dennis i remember years ago uh bumping into you and uh you said i've just been listening to some yardbirds on a record player you're still playing vinyl or do you have you come across to streaming yeah we just play vinyl here yeah we still have a cd player too i, yeah. I, I still listen to cds also but um because I've got a lot of great music on CDs that I don't have on vinyl, but uh, but yeah, my my preference is to is to play vinyl records, and we were playing vinyl records last night. There's something about, it, isn't there, where you sort of I don't know about you, but you sort of feel like you're in the moment listening to it, whereas when it's this endless stream of MP3s, I find it very easy to wander off. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, with a record, you've got to take, you got to find it, you got to take it out of the sleeve. And then you notice something cool on the sleeve and you want to read that. And, and then you got to put it on the turntable. It's a process and it's a ritual that you go through. And, and that tends to focus your attention on it. You know, yeah. like you're saying, it's, it's, it's a, it's more, uh, more involving. Per, on a personal level to do to listen to vinyl records and and so i think you hear more of them and plus they sound better yeah they sure do certainly makes you pay attention but dennis thank you so much for joining me today i'm really looking forward to seeing the shows in uh, june and anybody listening can check out the website to find all the dates in their capital city <laughs>